Please join me in a prayer for illumination. Lord, we come before you today with humble hearts and open minds. We ask for your blessing on the words that are spoken. We ask that attention will be drawn not to the speaker, but to the Savior, that we will learn about you and in understanding you, know our place in the world in relation to ourselves, to our neighbors, and to all those we interact with. The scripture today is Matthew 5:11 through 16. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything, but is thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it under the bushel basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. The word of the Lord. Last Sunday, uh, Mike launched our new sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount, which we are continuing today. And the Sermon on the Mount is this uh, great collection of Jesus' teaching focused on the character of Christians, what their lives should look like, uh, what kinds of values they should exhibit. Uh, In other words, the lifestyle that they should display in the world, not only as individuals, but as a community. And as uh, Cam alluded uh, to earlier, this is is a challenging uh, teaching that we find here in the Sermon on the Mount. And throughout history, there has been a lot of debate on how to read and interpret uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Some conclude that Jesus' teaching here is so radical and so idealistic that it can only be for the future, that his teaching is is not something that anyone can really be expected to live out fully today, but maybe in the future when God's kingdom comes in its fullness, then people will be able to, to live this out. Others respond, no. It is possible to live according to this teaching, but only if Christians separate themselves from the world in a radical way, uh, and then uh, they can live it out purely. Uh, But our text today, uh, that we we just heard read, shows us that Jesus intends his followers to be two things, to, to be a distinct community, different from the world, and to be present in the world. Using the language of our mission statement here at Geneva, we could say that Jesus commands Christians both to embody the gospel and to engage the world. And let me explain where we see this in our text today. In the Beatitudes that uh, Mike preached on last week, Jesus described the character of Christians in in the third person. through these eight beatitudes or or blessings. Blessed are the poor in spirit, 
Blessed are those who mourn, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, and blessed are those who are persecuted uh, because of righteousness. Now often, uh, verses 11 and 12 that we read today are, are tacked on to the, the end of the Beatitudes as a, as a ninth Beatitude, expanding on the blessing for the persecuted. And it does continue that theme, but notice that Jesus switches in verse 11 from the third person to the second person and talks directly to his disciples. Blessed are you when people revile you and, and persecute you and, and other, other all kinds of evil against you falsely on, on my account. And the second person continues in, in what follows. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. You see, these verses are meant to go together. And this leads to an important conclusion. The kind of church community, community of disciples that Jesus has in view, holds together two things. On the one hand, a church like this will be different from the culture around it to the point of being persecuted. It will be a minority culture within the larger society. Uh, People in this community will know what they believe and and why they believe it. They will have strong convictions. They will be committed to truth and to living out the teachings of Jesus. At the same time, this kind of church will be an outward-facing community that lives for the sake of others is salt of the earth and is the light of the world. Uh, A church like this will not live just for itself and its own concerns, but for others and for their needs. It's unusual to find a community of people that is both these things at the same time. It's, It's easy to be separate, but closed, or open, but indistinct. And so, we want to try and understand how these things can be held together. And if the church is to be this kind of community, there are three things that we we see in this text today uh, that are necessary, that will always be found with a a church, a a community of Christians living out life together uh, like this. First, it will be a suffering community. Second, it will be a sacrificial community that lives not for itself but for others. And finally, it will be a grace-filled community that's confident uh, that God works in and through our weakness. So let's look at each one of these. The suffering community, a a sacrificial community, and a a grace-filled community. First, the, the kind of church that reflects the Sermon on the Mount will be a suffering community. Jesus calls his disciples to be people of character who can stand up under persecution. But he says they should not only endure this suffering, but display joy even in the midst of it. This is a lot to ask, isn't it? I mean, it's one thing for Jesus to, to warn people to expect persecution. It's another thing to add, and I want you to rejoice 
when it happens. Now, how do we understand this? You might look at verse 12 and say, well, he offers a reward. This is an exchange here. They suffer, and then by suffering, they earn this good stuff in heaven that they can enjoy later on. This is what they're rejoicing about. But this interpretation is is contradicted by what Jesus has already said at the beginning of this sermon, that blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the gospel, that those who have nothing receive everything. Salvation is by grace. They don't have to earn something in heaven by suffering on earth. He says it's all a gift given at the beginning. But what he's saying is that people who are saved by grace know that there is something greater than anything in this world. When you're looking forward to the reward that God provides, rather than to wealth or or popularity or fame or any other finite reward, you can rejoice and be glad even in the most difficult circumstances, even when you lose other good things because you know that God's favor has been given to you. This is what makes what Jesus says here so remarkable and and, and what frees you from the opinions of other people. He's not just calling his disciples to some great religious effort He's calling them to find their confidence, not in themselves, but in what God has done for them in the gospel. If you know that you have his blessing, then you no longer live for the blessing of other people. It doesn't matter what they think of you, because you stand before an audience of one. And he has said, I am pleased with you. Just three weeks ago, one of the best-known Chinese house church pastors, Wang Yi, was sentenced to nine years in prison for inciting to subvert state power uh, because he and his church leaders refused to register their church with the Chinese government. If you're not familiar with this case, I recommend you look into it. It's been widely covered by the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, many others. Wang Yi is a lawyer who converted to Christianity 14 years ago and then uh, soon afterwards became a pastor and now leads one of the the largest house churches in China. Uh, He's been arrested numerous times, and just two months before his last arrest, he published a statement of his convictions entitled, 14 Decisions. In the face of persecution, what will I do? And in this document, he lays out his theology of of peaceful disobedience to the government. You know, I'll I'll send a link to this uh, in in this week's email so you can look at it yourself. But he ends with a prayer in this text, and I I wanted to share just a part of it with you today. Uh, He writes this, May the Lord bless me with so much reverent fear for him to the point where I am not afraid of any power that does not fear him. May the Lord grant me peaceful resistance 
positive perseverance and joyful disobedience in all matters of conscience, faith, and the church. And in everything that relates to the flesh, may he grant me the power of patience and silence. May the Lord remove the potential in this process to lash out in hate and resentment. May he have mercy on me and support me in my weakness when I am in isolation. May the Lord help me so that from the day of my detention, I will pray every day for all those in power related to my case, as well as officials in the police force, national security, the prosecutor's office, the court, and other government agencies. Do you hear the echo of the Sermon on the Mount here? He's fearless before any power but God's. He's willing to go to prison for his faith. But his prayer is not just for himself or his loved ones, his wife and his two children. He prays for those who have imprisoned him and for the larger society of which he is a part. He remains in prison today. So this is our first point. The the kind of church that Jesus describes here is both distinct and outward-facing, and this will, by necessity, be a suffering community. And when Christians respond to attacks without seeking revenge or, or retaliating, they reveal that they are not depending on themselves but on God and seeking a greater reward uh, than this world can offer. Going on to the sayings about being salt and light, Jesus shows us more of what this looks like and what it means to be a sacrificial community that, that lives not just for itself but for others. To, to be the salt of the earth means that Christians are to be a preservative in places of corruption and perversion. You know that salt has been an important commodity throughout history, and today we use it primarily for flavoring. But in the ancient world, its most important function was as a preservative to keep meat from rotting. So in Jesus' metaphor, Christians are the salt, and the world is the meat. He's saying that his people will be a kind of preservative in the midst of a broken world. They're willing, they're the people who are willing to to name things that are wrong and and to confront them. But as they do this, Christians should be marked by a profound humility, even in the face of, of deep moral disagreement. John Stott made this point in his classic commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, published in 1978. He wrote, when society does go bad, we Christians tend to throw up our hands in pious horror and reproach the non-Christian world. But should we not rather reproach ourselves? One can hardly blame unsalted meat for going bad. It cannot do anything else. The real question to ask is, where is the salt? This is the point Jesus is making in verse 13 when he says, If salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything, but it's thrown out and trampled underfoot. Some people say that Dead Sea salt was mixed with impurities, such that when the the sodium chloride leached out, it left only an unsalty white powder. That that may be true, but 
But Jesus' main point here is that unsalty salt is a contradiction in terms, like, like water losing its wetness. And so if there's a confusion in the culture, we need to look at ourselves and say, where are we confused? Where are we being unfaithful? Where are we not being engaged to be the people that Jesus calls us to be in the world? If being salt is about responding to things that are wrong, to be the light of the world means to be a positive influence for good. You're the light of the world, Jesus says. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. The the nature of light is to shine. It, It would be silly to light a lamp just to cover it up. So Christians are meant to be examples of the character of Jesus who says, about himself in the Gospel of John. I am the light of the world. So the purpose of Christians here is not only negative, responding to corruption, but also positive, shining goodness. And Jesus calls a whole community of people to shine with his light. The image of a a city on a hill that cannot be hidden is a picture of a city that can be seen at night especially in the ancient world, not because of a single big light that shines. It's lots of little candles that together make for a great brightness. And that's why every single person here today is so important to the, to the work to which Jesus calls us as his people. No matter what you do, no matter what age you are, no matter what prestige your your job gives you in our society, Jesus says that he has a purpose for you and for your vocation. He has put you somewhere to be a part of the work that we're all doing together in this city for his sake. So, we're called to be a... Let me remind myself, (laughs) a suffering community, a sacrificial community, but finally, uh, the, the only way that we can be this kind of church is by being a grace filled community. The church can only do this work if it's dependent on God's grace, not looking for the applause of the culture around it. Notice that Jesus does not say, do these things and you will be salt or you will be light. He declares, you are salt. You are the light. Christians are not salt and light first because of what they have done. They are salt and light because Jesus has declared it to be so. This is good news for us today because it means that the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom has arrived apart from our efforts and despite our failures. It comes in Jesus and in his word. We're saved by grace. And this is what makes us truly stand out in the world. Jesus is the ultimate preservative. He's the true light of the world. And when you believe this, you do good works not because you have to, but in gratitude for what God has first done for you. This is the motivation that Jesus gives in verse 16. 
In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. This is the first time in the Gospel of Matthew that God is called Father. But it will, it will be repeated 14 more times just in the Sermon on the Mount. What Jesus is, is saying here is remarkable. He's telling his disciples and, and telling us that you don't have to work your way into God's favor. You don't have to earn your position in his family. You're already in the family by grace, through faith. And when you know that his love is yours, unconditionally, you're able to withstand criticism and and opposition from others. And when you've experienced that love, you want to share it with others. You're willing to suffer, and you're willing to sacrifice. One of the reasons why I am uh, so fascinated by the witness of the early church and often uh, use illustrations from it is that I think it models for us how to live out this teaching of Jesus in our own world today. The sociologist of religion, Rodney Stark, at the University of Washington has studied the early Christian church extensively, and he's especially interested in the question of why did the early church grow so quickly as this minority group in, in the ancient world. Uh, the church was illegal, it was persecuted, it was poor, but it swept the Roman Empire. And in his book, The Rise of Christianity, Stark shows that one important reason for the growth of the church was the Christian response to the epidemics that swept the Roman Empire in the second, third, and, and fourth centuries. During these plagues, massive numbers of people died. In one of the epidemics, Uh, Historians think it it may have been smallpox. Uh, From 165 to 180 uh, AD, a quarter to a third of the Roman Empire's population died in just 15 years. And while many people throughout this time abandoned the sick in the cities and sought safety in the countryside, the Christians' response was different. They stayed where they were, and they cared for the ill. They didn't abandon their own brothers and sisters in the faith, And they also risked their lives to care for their non-Christian neighbors. They simply saw themselves as putting into practice the teaching of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And this had a huge impact on the society, and and, and people came to faith because of it. How do we know this? Well, because the the pagans complained about it and what the Christians were doing. Uh, Julian the Apostate, who was the, the last pagan emperor of Rome uh, in the 4th century, wrote, this in a, wrote something about this in a, in a letter to his priests. Uh, he said this, These impious Galileans, that's what he called the Christians, these impious Galileans not only feed their own, but ours also, welcoming them with their agape love. They attract them as children are attracted with cakes. While our pagan priests neglect the poor, the hated Galileans devote themselves to works of charity and by a display of false compassion have established and given effect to their pernicious errors. Such practice is common among them and causes contempt for our gods. In other words, they're making us look bad. You can sense the the emperor's confusion about these Christians. 
what they believe is so weird, but they're doing so much good. I believe that the church today is called to a, a similar lifestyle. Absolutely committed to Jesus and his teaching, and absolutely committed to loving those who are outside the church, especially those with the greatest needs, those who are overlooked by society, the sick and the poor. And when you do these two together in suffering love, the result is powerful. This is what made Martin Luther King Jr.'s leadership in the civil rights movement so remarkable. He captured how the two work together uh, in a sermon that's quoted in in the Reflections page today. He said this, To our most bitter opponents, we say, we shall match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. We shall meet your physical force with soul force. Do to us what you will, and we will continue to love you. Throw us in jail, and we shall still love you. Send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our community at the midnight hour and beat us, and leave us half dead, and we shall still love you. But be ye assured that we will wear you down by our capacity to suffer. One day we shall win freedom, not only for ourselves, we shall so appeal to your heart and conscience that we shall win you in the process, and our victory will be a double victory. This is an attitude rooted in the cross of Jesus. When you know that his sacrificial love has changed your heart and you're willing to love others in the same way. There will be opposition. People may think you're foolish for believing that Jesus is alive. But the good news is that if you believe that Jesus has died and been risen for you, you're free from what anyone else thinks. You can love them even if they hate you because you know that your Father in heaven is pleased with you, that he smiles upon you, that his light shines in the darkness. Do you believe this? Let's believe it together. Let's pray. Our Father, we do pray that you would fill us with such a vision of your love and your grace and your mercy uh, displayed for the world in the person and work of Jesus, that our own hearts would be softened and changed, that we would love others as you have loved us, that we would serve as you serve, that we would give as you give. We thank you for your grace, and may you be honored and glorified in our lives and in the life of our community. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.